Chapter 2 of The Fortune Hunter, a novel of New York Society by Anna Cora Mollett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly S. Taylor O oh, blessed with temper whose unclouded ray can make tomorrow cheerful as today. Pope. Light from her makes many phrases bright. Taylor. A few days after the evening spent at Niblo's, Miss Rachel Clinton alighted from her carriage at the door of Mr. Lemming. She entered without ringing and was ascending the stairs when the parlor door opened and a sharp-visaged face peered forth. "'Who's there? Oh, is it you, Miss Clinton?' Rachel's ears were familiar with that harsh, shrill voice, yet it sounded so unexpected from behind her she could not help starting. "'It is I, Mrs. Lemming. Is Miss Walton at home?' "'Yes, she is in her chamber.' "'Will you not walk into the parlor?' she added, in a more courteous tone, at the same time opening the door sufficiently for the whole of her tall, gaunt, and shrill person to become visible. "'Thank you. I will go to Aria's chamber.' "'It's always Aria's chamber,' muttered Mrs. Lemming, as she shut up the door somewhat urgently. "'One would suppose there was nobody living in the house but Miss Aria.' they will find some day who is mistress here and will have to look up for their pretty favorite somewhere else i can tell them rachel with a quickened step ascended to the third story and without knocking entered the apartment of her friend her step was so light that she was unnoticed by aria and she could not help pausing on the threshold to contemplate the chastely beautiful tableau before her the room was small but what perfect neatness reigned throughout, and how much of the character of its occupant could be read in its little arrangements. The floor boasted no better covering than a rag carpet, and there were but two rickety chairs against the wall. The narrow trundle bed in one corner was adorned with a patchwork quilt representing the rising sun, the work of Arya's own hands. A miniature stand in another corner held a tumbler filled with flowers, its base surrounded by a circle of evergreen moss, among which some golden-hued beech shells were fancifully embedded. Several fine engravings were nailed to the wall, and wide black tape bands were neatly fastened around them, an ingenious substitute for frames. A picture immediately over the bed represented Raphael's Messiah and directly above it hung a wreath which at first glance might have been taken for a delicate painting rachel knew that it was not so for she had seen the flowers culled pressed in a manner to retain their color then carefully attached with a pellucid gum to paper and after that the paper cut away leaving a crown of natural flowers the hues of which remained unperishing at the foot of the bed was a small hanging library well filled and beneath it a large box crammed with books for which there was no other repository the window was open and a rude shelf without it held a dozen pots of monthly roses mignonettes and geraniums 
a canary bird was singing in a wicker cage, which was fastened to the shutter, and in front of him, on a low bench, sat Arya. The loose white robe, slightly girdled at the waist, showed to advantage the outlines of her slender but well-developed figure, and formed exactly the contrast to her dark and simply knotted hair, which a painter would have desired. She was bending over her work, every once a while raising her head to look at the canary and imitating his notes with a low murmuring sound as she plied her needle. "'Why, Aria, have you eyes for your canary alone?' said Rachel, after her pause. "'Dear Rachel, have you indeed come to spend the morning? How kind in you!' "'I have come to visit your bower, as Esther would call it, and indeed, dear Arya, even such unromantic persons as you and I might apply that term to your little chamber without its being more poetical than appropriate, and the bower has more than one bird in it. We will make it a bower of joy, then, said Arya gaily, and the songs of the bird shall always be blithe, but throw off your hat and take my little bench there. Now lean back against the cornice, and you will find the seat about as convenient as an armchair. You see, I study comfort. Other people's comfort you have always studied. And my own, too. Besides, I take comfort in seeing others comfortable. Have you brought your work? To be sure. Do you suppose I would venture into a hive of a bee such as you without it? Nay, I shall think you are showing your sting in the hive if you laugh at the restless quality that keeps me always employed. Now confess, can there be anything more agreeable than for two friends who love each other as we do to be shut up together in a cozy little chamber such as this, with our fingers and our tongues equally employed, opening our hearts to each other whenever we open our lips? And do you suppose we should chat half so freely or naturally if our hands were idle? As for me, I should find some difficulty in keeping mine away from mischief. There was a time when I might not have comprehended your argument, but as of late you have quite inoculated me with your industrious mania. Pray, how came you by it? My industry, as you call it, is partly constitutional and partly springs from the conviction that our time in this world is at best so short that we ought to take advantage of every minute. Tell me, dear Aria, what is the reason that you always look so smiling and happy? How do you manage to take an interest in everybody and everything? How comes it that you find enjoyment everywhere? How am I going to answer all these questions without showing a great deal of vanity? However, my vanity shall not interfere with your wishes. In the first place, then, you must know that I have a thousand everyday causes and sources of happiness. What are they? You are not rich. You are an orphan. Your uncle is, forgive me, a tyrant. You live secluded. You are forced to work for yourself make all your own clothes. You are... Stop! 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 cried Arya, placing her delicate hand over the mouth of her friend. Am I not young and in health? 
Have I not friends who love me and opportunities of enjoying their society? Have I not books and time and inclination to read them? Have I not the most invaluable of guardians, the best counselor and friend in Mr. Lemming? As for my uncle, you do him an injustice. He permits me almost always to do as I like. And you know some wise person has said, the only way to please a woman is to let her have her will. But these are the things enough to make you happy. One secret of my happiness is, I never suffer myself to be idle. If anything annoys or grieves me, after trying to philosophize, do not be frightened at that long word, upon it for a while, and to try to find out what good may proceed from it, I take up an interesting book and forcibly fix my attention on that, or I busy myself with my needle, or employ myself in any way that occasion offers. I believe that almost anybody may be happy, or at least contented, who earnestly desires to be so, who feels convinced that God placed his creatures on earth for their enjoyment here and that they might so perfect themselves as to be capable of higher enjoyment hereafter, and that almost all their misery proceeds from the violation of physical, civil, or divine laws. I am indebted to kind Mr. Lemming for many of my ideas on this subject. I have been taught to believe that any yielding to discontent and morbid melancholy is an actual sin, that it has so moulded the spirit as to render it less capable of happiness, and consequently more susceptible of misery, and that this impulse communicated to the soul would affect our future as well as our present life. Yet it is not always possible to resist a sensation of depression and weariness. Perhaps not, when that sensation springs from physical causes, but if from mental causes it is possible. Are we not most apt to find what we look for? If I should ever keep it in mind to observe how many sources of evil there are in life, I should probably contemplate nothing but misery. But my inclination led me to observe the sources of happiness. I should find food for enjoyment everywhere. Do you remember the anecdote of the painting which some Italian artist put in the marketplace, desiring everybody who looked upon it to point out its defects? When he came for his painting at nightfall, he found every part of the drapery and every feature marked as defective. The next day he placed it in the same position, desiring those who passed by to point out its beauties. Again he found his painting covered with marks but they were of approbation. Something to admire had been discovered in every touch which, on the previous day, had been condemned. So it is that we find exactly what we look for. But tell me, Aria, have you never any causes of unhappiness for which you do not seek? Perhaps I have a few causes that would make me unhappy if I permitted them to do so. But will you not tell them to me? I do not ask out of mere curiosity. I have been reflecting a great deal on these subjects as of late, and I wish to judge of the justice of your assertions. I am an orphan, 
and I often feel the absence of a mother's love. My heart yearns to know something, to form some idea of her who gave me birth, that I may think of her and love her as a bright and holy being dwelling in heaven. But when I attempt to speak on this subject to my uncle, he silences me with sternness. For that uncle, too, I feel an affection which he never permits me to express. I long to do something to cheer his gloom, to be more frequently with him, that I may exert a happier influence over him. It gives me pain not to be beloved, and I cannot but realize that he has no tenderness for me. And then I know he is embarrassed in his circumstances, and that my expenses here make a troublesome call upon his purse. I lately proposed to him that he should permit me to become a teacher in some school, but he rejected my proposition with indignation. I am a burden upon him, and am becoming one upon Mr. Lemming. Inasmuch as my uncle is somewhat in his debt, then I am in want of many little necessities, with which I can ill dispense, and I have no means of supplying myself, that is, I had none, until Dr. Chadwick kindly procured me a ticket for the ladies' depository, so that I am enabled to dispose of the produce of my needle, without troubling my uncle or wounding his pride. Look, is not this scarf beautifully embroidered? I really took pleasure in forming these roses. It is for the depository. Do you think it will sell? Yes, yes. But go on with the causes of your unhappiness. Well, then I... I really believe I have enumerated all. Let me see. Oh, yes, yes. Then I am very fond of society, of social intercourse, of the opera, concerts, etc., with the exception of your family, my uncle forbids me to pay any visits unaccompanied by him, and as for concerts and opera, I know but little of them. But then your society is a great deal. My bird makes good music at home. There. Now I have enumerated all my woes and grievances. They do not make a very formidable array. But are you satisfied? Is this all? Yes. All I can remember. You have forgotten Mrs. Lemming's harsh disposition, her habitual unkindness towards you. I believe it would kill me to live in this house with such a woman. You wrong her. She is not unkind. It is her way. That is to say, her manners are a little peculiar. And if you think of her causes which impaired her disposition, you could easily forgive her. She is childless, and she has longed so earnestly to become a mother. Had she a child, it would inherit the property left by her aunts, which must otherwise descend to some very distant branches of the family. I find this no excuse for her peevish humor and her dislike to be beholding to the happiness of others. But think of how good Mr. Lemming is. Yes, he adores you, and who does not? How I envy your temperament. I have none of your sources of discontent, yet I am not half so cheerful. But then I have one annoyance which you have not. 
Nature has made me so very, very ugly. And you, you are so beautiful, she exclaimed, gazing admiringly upon her friend. Oh, no, Rachel, answered Aria with energy. You are not ugly. How could anyone be ugly with such a lovely soul as yours? Does not Shakespeare say, In nature there is no blemish but the mind, and that virtue is beauty? You are not ugly to those who love you. You were never ugly to me. In spite of Rachel's homely feature, less partial eyes than those of Aria at that moment would have looked upon her as not ugly. Her light gray eyes, generally so dim-looking and languid, were illumined by an expression of admiring affection, and the smile about her ill-shaped mouth disclosed teeth of brilliant whiteness, while it animated every feature of her face. Besides this, the winning sweetness of her voice forced you to think of the beautiful internal, which lent a charm even to so plain an exterior. You are partial, Aria, but I am ugly, and I have some reason to feel it bitterly. My nurse used to call me a little fright. My very mother has reproached me for my ill looks, and in earlier years refused me the finery with which she decked out my younger sister. Sometimes I have felt like a criminal for being so ugly, and thought that even the eyes of strangers could not rest upon me without pity. I almost hated myself. Many and many a time, when quite a child, have I made grimaces at the homely visage which my mirror reflected, and turned from it with tears of anger. I could not comprehend why Esther should have been so fair, and I so devoid of charms. I have tried, and partially succeeded in conquering these feelings, but sometimes my unprepossessing appearance makes me so dissatisfied with myself, and with everybody else, that I am utterly wretched. What a very crooked magnifying glass that pair of eyes yours must be. But even if you were the frightful personage you imagine yourself, what matters the covering with which your spirit is to wear but a few years? When death comes, you throw it off, and your spirit rises in the holy loveliness with which your virtues have endued it, transcendentally beautiful forever. Why should you care what texture of your body may be when your soul, which is yourself, becomes peerlessly lovely through your own acts? Do you believe, then, that the soul has a form or a shape any more than ether has? How could I believe otherwise? Have not the angels, which the Bible tells us have appeared to men, been in the form of human beings. Were not Moses and Elijah seen by the disciples in the form of men? The vulgar idea is that the soul re-enters the material body on the judgment day, but the judgment day had not come. That is the judgment day many expect. I believe every man's judgment comes immediately after his death. If our spirits were but ether, how could they in another world, exercise the faculties which they have enjoyed here, and what would existence be without those faculties, that we can possess them independent of the senses, natural somnambulism proves, 
For in that state, all the senses are laid asleep, yet the spirit operates. The natural eye is closed, or if it be open, it is sightless. Yet the eyes of the spirit take cognizance of the objects by which it is surrounded, and even penetrate distances which no natural vision could reach. I look upon the body as not more necessary to the soul, not more a part of it, than your dress is part of your body. One is accidentally hereditarily beautiful. The other becomes beautiful through our own efforts to conquer natural evil and implant good in its stead. Every good act, then, leads another charm to the spirit. Truly, for such a fright as I am, your doctrine should be quite an inducement to goodness. But can there be any real goodness, dear Rachel, unless the motive is purely good? If you performed any noble or charitable act from any other motive than because it was pleasing to God, and out of genuine love for goodness, apart from all considerations, would the act be truly good? I cannot see any objection to the truth of your reasoning, and certainly your doctrine is a happy one, and in harmony with the perfect justice which we believe to be an especial tribute of our beneficent Creator. Do look at this bud. Have I not finished it quickly? Never call yourself ugly again, will you? I cannot promise, but when I think myself so, I will remember that my soul may possess charms which have been denied to my person. Was not that a carriage that stopped? Yes, it is Estelle. She is coming in. When I left her, she said she had some purchases to make and would come for me afterwards. But why will you call her Estelle? She likes it, and why should I not? The name which it pleases her best to hear is most agreeable for me to pronounce. But it sounds affected. It would not have sounded so to you if she had been christened by that name. Therefore, the affectation is only ideal. To call her as she desires is to gratify her in a very innocent way. There you are certainly wrong, for you encourage that romantic disposition of her which leads her... Rachel was interrupted by the entrance of Esther. Lovely Aria, sweet sister mine, I am rejoiced to see you. Aria rose to welcome and embrace Esther. But she, without returning the caress, sank into a chair and fixed her eyes mournfully upon a garland of flowers which she held in her hand. "'What a lovely wreath!' exclaimed Arya admiringly. "'Where did you get it?' "'I know not,' replied Esther, without raising her eyes. "'Know not where you got it from? "'Did it fall from the skies?' exclaimed Arya. "'Did you find it in the street?' said Rachel. "'In the street!' replied her sister indignantly. "'I received it from an unknown hand.' "'How did the unknown hand present it?' asked Rachel. "'Do gratify our curiosity, good little Estelle,' Arya joined in. "'Remember, we are only everyday mortals "'and are strongly prone to the failing of our mother Eve. 
"'You shall be gratified,' replied Esther solemnly. "'I had entered Stuart's. The carriage stood at the door. "'I was absent but a moment. "'When I returned to see this garland lay upon the seat, "'with this inscription attached to it.' "'As she uttered these last words, she drew from her bosom a small slip of paper.' "'Let us see the paper! Let us see the paper!' exclaimed Rachel and Arius simultaneously. "'Never! The emotions of a feeling soul should not be profaned by the eyes of the world!' "'Did you not ask the coachman who placed the wreath in the carriage?' inquired Rachel. "'No, I could not stoop to communicate with a menial on the subject,' she replied." "'Could you not guess from whom it came?' asked Arya. "'As the carriage moved away, I saw a face that was familiar to me. "'It was that of Mr. Brainard. "'The gentleman whom Mr. Ellery brought to pass Friday evening with us?' asked Rachel. "'Yes, the one who so heroically stepped forward when my life was in danger, and he rescued me.' "'And, of course,' returned Rachel, smiling, "'you are duty-bound to be eternally grateful to him.' "'The heart may not be forced,' replied Esther, with a sigh, "'drooping the lids of her really beautiful eyes "'as she pushed the wreath from her. "'I am glad, sister, that your heart is in that condition,' "'continued Rachel. "'For my opinion of Mr. Brainerd, "'although I may be judging hastily,' is that his head and heart are equally light, and that he is wanting in good sense and depth of feeling to balance either of them. A noble nature must ever be incomprehensible to meaner souls, replied Esther, the sublime and pathetic tragically mingling themselves in her voice. Such is the inevitable decree of fate. "'But it was never yet the fate of flowers to fade in my chamber for lack of attention,' said Arya, springing up lightly and immersing the wreath in water before Esther could prevent her. By the time that Arya had arranged every flower in the garland to her liking, and so disposed the leaves that the water should touch and refresh without injuring them, Esther was apparently lost in a reverie. Her hands were clasped on her lap. Her head drooped on her bosom, and her negligently arranged hair, we beg pardon, picturesquely arranged, she would have called it, fell about her shoulders and completely concealed her face. Arya's smile was changed into a half-sigh as she gazed upon her. But she knew Esther's temperament too well to disturb her, and quietly reseated herself by the side of Rachel. A few moments they plied their needles without speaking. Rachel was the first to break the silence. "'Do you know, Arya, that since I have not said to you half what I came here to say this morning to say, and do you know I am afraid to go on, lest you should think I have caught some of—' Rachel's glance toward Esther made Arya divine the conclusion of the sentence. Before the words could be uttered, her finger was on Rachel's lip, and her eyes bent hers with an expression that said, Spare her, you ought to spare her. 
you need not be afraid to make any confidential communications to me on the grounds that I shall laugh at you, she said aloud. Goethe said that it was only necessary to grow old to become indulgent, for that he saw no fault committed which he had not committed himself. And I, without growing old, have too often the same reason which the German had for tolerating the faults of others. Will you go on now? I have come to the conclusion, resumed Rachel, that I will not be made miserable in this world through my own folly. I observe that most women are not calculated to live single, and yet become wretched through marriage. My father is reputed to be rich, and is rich. Esther and myself are therefore heiresses, and as heiresses are sought after in a manner which we might be spared under ordinary circumstances. Even I, in spite of these sandy locks and this unlovely exterior, have not been without suitors, who protested that my heart alone was what they desire. Fortunately, I am under no delusion with respect to my person, and I know the esteem in which my beauty is held. I mistrust all my pretended admirers. They would wed not unalluring me, but my father's more alluring gold. Without that gold, I should probably be free from all solicitations. To me, then, riches are not a blessing. I cannot conceive why old maid should be so odious a term. I have this morning had a long conversation with my father, in which I entreated him to make a will debarring me from all participation in his fortune, beyond a very small competence, and to make his determination publicly known. After great entreaty he consented. I shall now be able to test if any lover is as unalloyed as the gold which I have renounced, and I run no further risk of being duped. I have prepared myself to live ever as I am, and I hope to prove that an old maid may at least be an amiable being, ever willing to bestow pleasure in any way in her power, and ever at leisure to serve those around her, to sympathize with their pains and their pleasures, and to find her joys in theirs. What say you to my arrangements? Think you I have grown too romantic to be rational? I think the determination to which you have arrived will render you happy. And what are the riches which you have renounced if they could not bring you that happiness? You do not think my resolution the effect of mere romance, then, asked Rachel. Only the romance of reality. What is reality? exclaimed Esther, who appeared to hear but the last words. There is nothing real but misery. Nothing is so ideal as self-made misery, sweet Estelle, replied Aria, winding her arm around Esther's neck. And this little chamber I call my bower of joy. Therefore, you must smile here. The lip may smile, and not the heart. Hearts are troublesome things, and I shall begin to think Estelle has lost hers, and is mourning over her misfortune, unless she cheers up. But, oh, why did I not think of it before? Rachel, Estelle, it is very pleasant to have you here. 
but do you not think we had better spend a few more moments in the parlor mrs lemming does not quite seem to like your visiting me so frequently and never paying her deference of a call mrs lemming seldom likes anything i am afraid said rachel i promise you she will like it if you pay her a visit this morning come estelle will you go i think you i can have sympathy with a sour disposition of a mrs lemming there can be no harmonious interchange of thought and feeling between us and her jarring chords would spoil the music of my life come you may not have sympathy with her but you will pay her a visit to gratify me come i never take nay for an answer when i want to hear yea i am sure you will both go to oblige me so let's away aria caught a hand of each of her friends and drew them toward the door with such a gentle but persuasive force that they could not but yield to her request esther with a deep drawn sigh and rachel without remonstrance for her new system of being an agreeable old maid probably prevented the display of any three visitors for mrs lemming exclaimed aria gaily flinging the parlor door wide open permit me the honor of introducing them continued she in mimic formality mrs lim she stopped suddenly for she had advanced several steps into the room without observing that mrs lemming was not alone beside her sat a young gentleman of three-and-twenty in stature he was somewhat below medium height but his formation was remarkably symmetrical and there was nothing about him which even the tongue of malice could call unmanly what was it but the spirit which could have given such graceful dignity to his form his countenance was strikingly handsome even beautiful yet not a liniment denoted effeminacy his head was a study for a painter and to have examined its developments would have been a delight to Spurzheim. Nature's own hand clustered the dark curls around his high, broad forehead. Genius had kindled the light of that mild hazel eye, over which the elevated brows inclined to an arch. But the especial charm, as far as mere features were concerned, was in the mouth. Its expression was so gentle, yet firm, full of sweetness, yet fuller of dignity, and when a smile played about the lips, it almost seemed as if flashes of light were darting over that serene countenance, while they called forth a thousand new beauties with every gleam. "'Your visits, ladies, were intended for me,' began Mrs. Lemming, with no little quality of sarcasm in her tone. "'Especially Miss Arias, I presume?' pray be seated aria colored deeply but the salutation of the ladies and gentlemen passed over without mrs lemming's remark being further noted rachel seated herself beside mrs lemming and mr chadwick taking a chair between estelle and aria commenced an animated conversation estelle's manner toward him was marked by an air of tender languor as though his presence imparted to her a pleasure almost oppressive. The instant her attention was for a moment diverted by Mrs. Lemming, 
Chadwick turned to Arya and said in a lower tone, "'How shall I thank you for this goodness? I was just despairing of seeing you. The goodness was very unpremeditated. You did not, then, know I was here? Not unless I discovered it by a species of magnetic intelligence. But you do not regret finding me here?' "'Oh, no,' replied Arya, with an unaffected warmth. "'Add one word more. Say you are glad. "'How often it is that there is more in a tone "'in which words are uttered than in the words themselves.' "'Arya felt the full meaning which that melodious tone "'conveyed to her inmost soul. "'She felt, too, what pleasure or what pain her answer could excite.' and she did not for a moment withhold the frank and ready, "'Oh, yes!' Mr. Chadwick would have answered, though his language could not have spoken half that his expressive countenance said for him, but the door opened, and Arya sprang forward to greet the visitor. That tall, majestic form hardly bent to receive her embrace, and the stern, cold brow relaxed not at her offered kiss." yet there was a likeness between the two in spite of the unlikeness produced by an entirely opposite expression the oval face the large dark eyes rather deeply set the long lashes the strongly marked eyebrows the purple darkness of the hair profuse and shining but this was all the one face good angels seemed to have guarded from every furrowed trace by gnawing care and withering passion to have stamped it with their own infinite charity and love. The other showed the scars of a spirit at war with all mankind, of a soul blighted by evil passions, brooding remorselessly over its own guilt. "'Uncle, dear uncle, how long it has been since we have seen you! Have you been ill?' no was the laconic answer with which mr mordaunt took his seat apparently indisposed for further conversation aria placed herself beside him and as it was not in accordance with her nature to remain silent she prattled away although to an apparently inattentive ear meanwhile esther had resumed her conversation with mr chadwick "'You do not usually visit in the morning,' said she. "'No, I brought this volume of Stephen's Travels to Mr. Lemming. "'He desired to see it, and under that cover I had an excuse for an early morning visit.' "'A smile, almost animated, passed over Esther's face. "'I thought you had some excuse, but how came you to know that I was here?' Ah. I remember now. I mentioned last night that I intended visiting Arya today, and you remembered it, did you? Mr. Chadwick looked somewhat surprised and then perplexed, but at this direct question replied with a gallantry which did not become him so well as did his usual manner. I always try to remember the words of a lady. "'And you are so successful in making use of them. "'But you might be pardoned what... "'Esther, is it not almost time for us to bid Aria good morning? "'It is nearly three, and father so much dislikes to be kept waiting,' said Rachel. 
why is it that there are beings to whom the sensual things of this life are all in all murmured esther distinctly enough for mr chadwick to hear rachel soon rose to take leave and esther of course was obliged to accompany her sister you have forgotten your wreath it matters not for i only remember the giver to think of the pain which i forcefully occasion him can i bring it to you asked mr chadwick as he handed her into the carriage no though its value would then be more than doubled mr chadwick could not but bow in acknowledgment of these words the doze was closed away flew the horses and esther's white handkerchief waved from the window until a bend in the street hid her from his sight she is an enigma i wonder if she knows her own meaning mused mr chadwick as he re-entered the house End of chapter two